wants to flip bottle caps in this crowd? Anybody here want to toss pennies? How about a game of blackjack, Charlie? <laughs> You've come to the right place. Uh, would you care to choose which walnut shell has under it concealed the elusive pea? Would you uh, care to match wits, eh? Do you really believe that the eye is quicker than the hand? Or which do you believe? That the hand, or do you believe the soul is quicker than eternity? Which would you prefer to put your dough on, eh, friend? Eh? How is that for a sinister opening? Oh, actually, this is, this is <laughs> Raymond, the friendly Bobsy twin. And uh, there's not going to be any trouble here, friends. Not at all. If you look very carefully, you'll see that actually underneath it all, under this rough, scruffly, bearded, cigar-smoking exterior, there is the Cowardly Lion. Ready to sing a song for you? Ready to play my lute? Ready to pluck upon your heartstrings? Ready to bring you warmth and good cheer? Ready to lighten up the dark corners? Of the dingy, drab, rotten, cruddy, muddy existence that you live in, friend. <laughs> Ready to pull you up by your bootstraps out of that great morass of quicksand that is slowly sucking you into the core of the earth. <laughs> yeah, this is Raymond, the friendly Bobsy twin. So uh, gather round and we will play our lutes, shall we? We will sing a rondelay of joy, delight, and good cheer. How do you like that little variation? All right, there. You see how it is? That's easing you into the water nicely. And now, uh, the first rep. <laughs> That's all right. Hey, listen, uh, you know, speaking of easing into the water nicely, you know, there's a, there's a, a long, deep psychological theory that... Uh, that has to do with the sudden plunge into the world. I mean, you know, most of us, before we are born, I'm saying before we are even conceived, before all of it, we rest in some kind of eternal darkness just floating somewhere in, the, in an abstract imagination. Is there a person before there is a person? You know? Well, <laughs> there are those who will say yes. And suddenly, without any warning, without absolutely no warning, a gigantic stony hand, taloned, beclawed, becalloused, reaches down and without any warning, right out of eternity you are yanked. Plunged without any warning. Plunged without any preconditioning into the world of now. The wind howls out of the frozen north. Your old man bellows from the next room. Your mother lurks beside the hot point range, cringing next to the refrigerator. And there you are, alone, untended, unaided. Just you. Nothing between you and all the howling forces of darkness but your rimless glasses. Your hearing aid. Your insurance policy. Alone, wearing a thin pair of tennis shoes, 
worn knickers and a t-shirt standing there taffy apple in hand waiting for what will come <laughs> what are you going to do about that friend <laughs> yeah here we are well the first thing that hits you of course is a dish rag right in the eye which reminds me it's commercial time You want, to, you want to continue that epic? <laughs> well, friend, you have continued it. As a matter of fact, you know what's happened ever since that moment. Well, of course, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk about this, you know, the psychological talk about what happens uh, when, when a person is yanked into this world. You know, here he is. He's standing around there, and the sun beats down, and all of a sudden, there he's there. You know, it's like, it's like just uh, without any warning, you're thrown into this ice-cold water. Either that or you're thrown into this boiling pit of molten lava. It depends on which way you look at it. You know? uh, <laughs> and yet, you know, have you ever had the, the, the sneaking sensation that some guys are born wearing a suit of armor and water wings? Uh, they're ready for anything? Oh, yeah. Oh, listen, I know guys who, who at the age of three were already making out. By the time they were five, they had the kindergarten organized. By the time they were ten, these guys were well on their way to the absolute pinnacle, the top. I, I, I know at least a half dozen of them. Of course, a few of them got developed bad knees along the way, you know. And <laughs> a couple of them got an ankle or two that was, you know, twisted and whatnot. But nevertheless, that sense that there are those who are born like, like bronze turtles, impregnable. Absolutely, you can't scratch your initials. Speaking of scratching initials, did I ever tell you about my grandfather? Well, I had a grandfather. Let me tell you, there's a funny, kind of a sad, <laughs> wild story. I had this grandfather who lived in Chicago. And uh, he lived in Chicago, and he was uh, one of these guys who lived to be 97 or something. Old man, he was tall and skinny. And he had blonde hair to the last day of his life. And all of his teeth, this was a big thing in the family. I said, you know, Grandpa still got all of his teeth. And once in a while, he'd bite somebody to show him. And he would sit in the next room and read. He would read long, involved tomes of philosophy. Never comment, never communicate to anybody, never say anything to anyone about what he was reading. Just sit there in the next room and read and read and read. When he was retired, just read. And he would always be absolutely impeccable. He would be dressed to the nines. He wears a dark suit, sparkling white shirt, dark tie, black vest, a gold chain across the front of it, his hair combed, his shoes shined, ready to go in any direction, no matter what happened. When he died, he died dignified. Absolutely. Everything pressed. He just quietly one day left. It was all there was to it. But one thing about Grandpa, and it became a kind of legend, was that Grandpa, many years before, when but a feckless youth in Chicago, he'd been fooling around the backyard, and this was back in the 18-somethings, you know. He's out in the backyard when out of the bushes came a turtle. And there are a lot of turtles around Chicago. In fact, many of them oh, they run the big companies and everything. There's many turtles in Chicago. One of them ran a newspaper for years out there. And this, this turtle came out of the bushes, and, and old Grandpa saw it. And uh, being, being a, a, a man of considerable blood, he saw this turtle come out, he grabbed the turtle, and in a moment of unthinkingness, with his penknife carved on the back of this young turtle a single word, a single colorful word, that the uh, kind of word, you know, you don't often hear. 
especially in those days, but Grandpa was one of those people. This became a family legend. He carved it right on the back of this turtle and uh, with his initials under it. And the, the, the turtle wandered back into the weeds, and that was the end of it. Well, Grandpa lived for a hundred years after that. This turtle was never heard from again until one fateful day, about nine years after Grandpa had departed. So help me, I'm telling you, an absolute, absolute... In fact, it was reprinted in all the papers throughout Chicago. Grandpa's gone now, about nine years. And my grandma, who, who uh, lived beyond him, she lived to 174. She is out in the backyard, the same backyard, fooling around among the tomato plants and the peonies, and she hears a scratching. And out from under the garage comes... That's right! Turtle's friend lived to be 400 years old. And this old turtle came wandering out, arthritic, covered with moss, bearing upon his back Grandpa's final statement to the world. His final statement laid right out there in front of everybody, God and country and the Chicago Tribune all saw it. And my grandma took one look at it and she says, Don't talk like that in front of me. Just the way she always said for 150 years before, the turtle turned around, took one look at Grandpa, Grandpa's spouse, Grandpa's house and the world that he had left, turned around and wandered back under the garage and was never seen again. And probably somewhere he's still there. He's waiting for his next cue. He's waiting for another moment, another time. Woohoo! And he could bring it out there in front of us all. That's a true story, by the way. It was reported in all the papers. The only time Grandpa ever got in the papers. And he was already dead ten years. Well, all right, speaking of true stories, friends, how about it? A couple of quickies. Well, you know, uh, this this uh, this business of uh, of what life really is about, uh, <laughs> uh, being yanked into it, uh, absolutely cold, stone, without preparation. And yet I wonder whether we are prepared or not. Uh, you know, the illusion that, uh, that life creates people or life destroys people is one I would really like to question. Because after all, life is people. I mean, that's, that's a, it, it seems like one of those uh, Chinese box puzzles, you know, within a puzzle, within a box, within a puzzle, within a within a square, within a cube. Uh, and yet, you'll hear people many many times say, "Well, you know, he was worn down by life," as though life is a thing that exists separately from people, as though they don't have anything to do with it. You know, yeah, look at poor old Fred, worn down, beaten down by the vicissitudes of life, as though. Fred had nothing to do with it. He was just sitting there, and life kept hitting him on the head, you know. A salami kept belting him back of the ear. He got pig bladders kept hitting him, and guys kept squirting him with seltzer water. And one thing and another, you know, he had nothing to do with it. He's just an innocent bystander. Well, of course, I think we all like to feel we're innocent bystanders. I, I, I suspect that underneath it all, we all like to, to feel, oh, boy, what a rotten world, excluding us, of course. We don't ever really come out and say excluding us, but it is implied always, oh boy, if this were only a better world, what we mean is if the world were more like me, yes, if the world understood and appreciated true beauty, if the world was sensitive and uh, non-violent like me, yes, I mean no harm to anyone. I just wish to live my life in peace and contentment. 
strewing garlands of beauty wherever I go. If only the world were a better place, and it would allow people like me to flower fully, to petal, to strew my pollen over the landscape, to create a lovely cloud of peace and understanding and truth, honesty, all those great things. With only were a better world. Yes, we are saluting all you better people out there today. Must be great, you know. I'm one of the rotten ones, in case you're interested. You know, you probably have felt all of your life that they're, you know, the, the, the they, you know, the they, you know the rotten people that, you know, crying out, they won't let you do this, they won't. Well, guess who one of the they is? <laughs> hey, you tuned right to the spot. Me, I'm one of the rotten ones, Fred. That's right. If there's anyone going to step on your neck, guess who is going to lead the phalanx? <laughs> oh, yeah. And if anyone's going to trample beauty underfoot. <laughs> oh, you just give me a great big sack of beauty and I'll know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah, and I can tell you what to do with truth, friend. And if you want to know, uh, and if you're over 21... I will send you the answer in plain sealed wrapper. Just send your name and address to how it really is. Take care of this friendly radio station. You must be over 21. 50 poses, friends, for art students only. Oh, what a sinister, rotten son of a gun I am today. It's not quite so simple as, as uh, the sloganeers would have you believe. Uh, I wish it were that simple, you know. But oh, yeah, I know guys that have 15, 20 slogans. They figure this covers it all. Be prepared. Penny saves. Penny earns. Smile. Think. Things like that. Uh, I know one guy that has on his uh, bathroom mirror. There was. Do you remember this uh, famous story about this famous guy who came over here to America uh, 150,000 years ago? He just really swept the world, boy. And these guys have always been sweeping the world, Mike. Uh, this guy came out of Europe, and he had a spade beard, you know, one of those sharp little uh, official-looking type guys. And he had a, you know, oh, no, no, I have, I have a Mephistophelian beard. That's very different from the Sigmund Freud type beard, which, one, denotes wisdom, truth, beauty, uh, philosophy. The other denotes the boiling cauldrons of hell. Which is quite the opposite. That's why beards are very emotional to people. They don't know which way it's going to jump, you know. One, on one hand, you can be God, and on the other hand, you can be the evil genius of the dark pit. You know, they're both bearded uh, in classical mythology. And yet, uh, this man came out of Europe wearing a spade beard, and he had on uh, a Homburg hat. He had a dark Chesterfield coat, and he carried a furled bumper shoot. And he had all the official designations of wisdom. He had at least 45 degrees. And he came out of Europe bearing a strange accent. Bearing the look in the eye of a man who was bringing wisdom, truth, and beauty to all the starving multitudes. And his wisdom, truth, and beauty consisted of one slogan. Every day, in every way, I grow better and better. Yes... And it swept the world like a great tide. Many a pimply-faced youth 
many an acne-beridden, nearsighted chick stood in front of her bathroom mirror with that slogan, every day and every way, I grow better and better. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. That swept the world like a, a bubonic plague. You know who had one of them on his on his mirror? Hold it there, Mike. Get ready there. You would be surprised who was definitely influenced by him. Adolf Hitler. That's right. A. Hitler was a follower of that same man. I'm telling you the truth. And he had on his bathroom mirror in German. And by George, he was. He got bigger and bigger. <laughs> so you got to be careful. You know, the definition of better comes in many shapes and forms. Now, when a shark figures it's getting better, how do you think that me he means it? Yeah, that's right. The more stainless grow his teeth, the longer and more pointed grow his fangs, the more better, the more besser, and the more besser grows he. Pardon my Pennsylvania Dutch. And speaking of things which are better and better, we have with you here a commercial. Now, uh, oh, I, I uh, you know, I, I, I have nothing against the commercial world. In fact, uh, no, I haven't. No, in, uh, there, in spite of the rumor that has been passed around, nothing I like better than a good, fat, singing commercial. I... That's the truth. I do, I, because I, 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 think, uh, I think that in them there is the truth of our time. Oh, yeah. I, uh, some of my great past memories include commercials. I remember for at least five years when I was a kid, I drew my mother out of her skull. I used to sing a Pepsi-Cola, it's the spot, 12 full ounces, that's a lot, twice as much for a nickel, too. Pepsi-Cola is the drink for you. Nickel, 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 pound on the kitchen table. Gee, will you cut that out? You're driving me out of my mind. Now, shut up. Sing something else. And I'd say, okay. Uh, <clears throat> Just the other day, I heard a lady say, give me Mission Bell wine, because Mission Bell's fine. She'd say, shut up! Well, <laughs> I was a true child of the commercial age. While other kids were singing, the music goes round and round. While other kids were singing, the three little pigs, I was belting out just the other day. I heard a lady say, give me Mission Bell Wine because Mission... <laughs> oh, yes, a 20th century man marching bravely into the future, bearing with him his portfolio, his resume... Bearing with him his credits. Uh, I sang tenor on the Pepsi-Cola ballad for B.B. Diano. I sang middle alto for the people that turned out the fantastic Greek classic, the Chiquita Banana Song. I sang in that chorus. I am proud to admit it. And I can just see one day when great artists of the commercial world are finally given their due, finally given their credit, it will be inscribed on their headstone. There it will be. There ought to be some kind of symbol, you know, the way musicians have a note and a clef. You know, there ought to be some symbol for great commercial artists, like a squash-down dollar sign, something like that, you know, with, a, with, with Pepsi-Cola bottles rampant or lambent, or however you prefer it. You see, with crossed Brillo pads on a background of Scott tissue, 
Well, this is our time. Don't laugh. Friends, it's no good to laugh at yourself. You are what you are. I can just see, believe me, I can see Hunrath the Bald sitting around there, you know, and Ethelred the Scaly. Because I think one thing, I think one thing that is absolutely runs throughout all of men, that this is this is for you. This is absolutely for you. I think it runs throughout all time, the tendency to put down whatever time you're in. In fact, Plato, Plato did it, you know. Plato wrote a long essay on, oh boy, things ain't what they used to be. Let me tell you, kids are rotten, the whole scene is falling apart. Why, I remember the days, I remember the days when a sculptor took a piece of marble and he chopped out a god. What are they doing now? Crud. This is Plato, you know. What is it? They call this art. They call this playwriting. Why, the other day I went to this, who is this nut Euripides? And, uh, you know, this is, uh, oh yeah, this is, this was Plato, you know, in his best. You see, of course, he, <laughs> he had a hang up on Aristotle, you know, and he figured that when the old man left that there was nothing left, you know. And, and, uh, this, this has always been. And I can see Ethelred the Scaly sitting there with Hunrath the Bald. These two men right in the middle of the, of the, of the, of the great epic period of man's transformation. One of them said, this is Ethelred the Scaly. Oh, boy. You sure are. And, and uh, you know, and, and uh, the other one says, yeah, Hunrath the Bald, Daddy. <laughs> you should talk. Oh, boy. What a pair of phonies. And they're sitting there with their chain mail and their maces and their palfreys out there. And one says to the other, oh, man, you should see the stories my old man used to tell me about the old days. Boy, we are living in decadent times. We are living in times that are going nowhere. Going nowhere. You, Hunrath the Bald, me, Ethelred the Scaly. Why, do you realize 500 years ago I would have been Eric the Red? No, I'm Hunrath the Bald. The Bald! And you're Ethelred the Scaly. Where's Richard the Lionhearted? Those were the days, Hunrath the Bald. Ain't my fault I'm bald. It's not your fault you're scaly. It's our times. Guys gotta be scaly in these days. The cruddy times. Now what do they call these the dark ages? The sun hasn't come up in 400 years. What a rotten time. Hunrath the bald. Born too soon. Do you realize in a thousand years they'll probably have something called Vitalis? What do I got? Nothing but a steel hat on my head. A couple of horns sticking out. Ethel Red the Scaly. You realize that there's going to be something called Noxema one year? Yeah. What do we got? Did Eric the Red have scales? Did Richard the Lionhearted lose his hair? No. Those were the days. Yeah, I always said. Yeah. And little did we realize that a hundred years later they would be played by Kirk Douglas. <laughs> you know, I have a vague suspicion that a thousand years from now you'll be played by John Wayne, which is a boff. Uh, speaking of boffs, it's station ID time. Well, the reason I, I, had, to, I had to bring this up... Now, you, you keep that big dramatic music there all set there, Mike, because... Uh, I think that there are times when you really see what our world is about from the world of the advertisements. You know, not more than a week ago, I got a letter from a kid in school. 
Uh, you know, you know, the older people really don't recognize this. I don't know why it's so, but I, I'm, I'm quite convinced that in any given period in history, uh, people who are alive at that time, for the most part, do not recognize pretty uh, very little of the truth or perhaps even none of the truth of their time. Or, uh, let's put it on this basis, they don't recognize the significant things of their time. They really don't. Uh, I, I'm, I'm convinced that, that if, uh, if you were to go back to the days of the signing of the Magna Carta, and, uh, you know, I'm sure that there must have been at least 500 guys standing around the fields, you know, scratching them and uh, snorting and blowing their nose. and the, You know how people do it, you know, digging in the dirt and walking around and kicking each other and so on. You know, living. And somebody says, hey, forsooth, Ethelred, down there in yonder lee, they are signing a paper. And the other one says, paper what? What paper, forsooth? Yea, verily. And the other one says, they are calling it the Magna Carta. And there is a man named King John, and Baron Ethelred is there. Oh, I said I wouldn't go across the street to see him. Crying out loud, what a phonies. And, and he, you know, he's fooling around the garden and kicking each other and yelling, hitting each other with clubs. And all the, all the while, down the street, they're signing the Magna Carta. He doesn't go down to see it. Well, I'm quite convinced that, that in the two caves, one guy is in a cave and he's chipping away at a rock. And uh, his friend comes over to the next cave. He says, Ugh, uh, uh, Ugh, him make wheel. He goes, Oh, that guy's a nut. Nobody went to see. That's <laughs> all. So, oh, it's not going to happen. And I think that, that one day, uh, maybe within within uh, the next three or four hundred years. Now, now, we never think in terms of time passing. It's very hard for people to accept the fact that one day all the people of in the world, all the people in the world that are alive, little babies, big grown-up men, everybody, everybody in the world that's alive now will one day be gone. This is a very hard thing to accept. It's very difficult. Just like recently, uh, the last Civil War veteran finally went. There is no Civil War veteran alive anywhere in the world. Absolutely none. And very few people who were around at that time are alive, or even alive at all at that time. After all, the Civil War ended in 1864, so there aren't many people around. And I, I would venture to guess uh, you could probably put all of them in a very tiny closet. And one day, there won't be a single one. That will be it. Well, within a hundred years or so, there won't be a single one left of this time. And then another hundred years will pass, and we will be legend. We will be legend. Uh, people will see pictures, woodcuts, photographs. They will see snippets of film, and they will be fascinated. They will say, look at that street. You can't believe it. They're crying out, look at that. Look at that. Would you imagine? They, they call those things cars. This is, they call them automobiles. Uh, fantastic how they live. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing. And, and look at their faces. Their faces even look different. Well, now, I'm not inventing this either. Have you ever looked at pictures of Civil War soldiers? Their faces look different from our faces. The look in the eye, just the way they were, the faces look different. And have you ever looked at pictures of crowds walking down the streets in the 20s? Their faces look different. F. Scott Fitzgerald's face looks different in the eyes. I don't know what it is. It's a look. It's the way they look at the world. Something. There's a curious 
difference. Uh, you see pictures of Clara Bow. You see pictures of all the great stars and people, just people. That's take out take out family pictures of of your aunt and your uncle and your mother and that of the twenties. They their faces have a certain blankness. I don't know how it is. Not blankness. A certain kind of a childishness. There's a peculiar kind of an innocence to them. Uh, Herbert Hoover had had to the day he died. It's a kind of a I don't know how to describe it. You know what I'm saying? You see it in pictures. This is something you never hear discussed. Now, I think the look on the face of, a, of an individual uh, is no different than his whole generation. His face may look different, but we're all looking at the same things uh, in one way or another. We are all part of the same time. You can be the greatest king. You can be the greatest president of a time or the, a bum. But you're all part of that time. I would love to have seen the look on the face of an Egyptian of, say, four or five thousand years ago. The look. Well, he would have a haunted look. Yeah, oh, his, his, his look would be haunted. In fact, even to this day, the Egyptians have a vaguely haunted look. Because this crowd, there was, this was a, a you, you cannot imagine a more necrophiliac crowd uh, than, oh, they were absolutely uh, hung on death and and uh, destruction and all the rest of that goes with it. And so they had a haunted look. They, they walked through their searing landscape, uh, figuring that any minute now a giant male fist would appear out of the sky. They were, they, even after death, they were afraid of what would happen to them. Wild crowd. Now, now here we are, uh, and I'm sure that 200 years from now, people will be looking at pictures of our faces. Now, we don't even recognize that we have a look on our face that is indigenous to our time. And they will be looking, and they said, look at, you know, there's something funny about their faces. There is something strange about their faces. It, this is a, a real man of the, of the 60s. They'll say, you, you, know, you just can't deny it. There he is. You know that peculiar poetic look of everybody that lived during the Civil War? That strange, Lincoln had it. You see pictures of, of guys in the cabinet. You see pictures of John Wilkes Booth. Those great panoramas of the of the uh, of, yeah, it's in the eye. You remember those big panoramic shots they would take of uh, things like a speech being given at Gettysburg uh, or a uh, an inauguration photo. Just look at the pictures of the faces. The strange, uh, not haunted, poetic look. Well, of course, you know, out of this world grew the poets. Whitman, he came right out of that world. Stephen. Uh, What's his name? Uh, uh, Crane, poet. Melville came out of that world. They all came out of that poetic world where they looked at the world as a... Have you ever heard the songs they sang of the Civil War? It's a poetic time. And uh, I guess it was a time of great religion. There was a strange poetry to all the people at the time. I imagine if you'd tapped anybody walking around the street then, he'd have been a better poet than we've got today. Yeah. Just anybody. And I'm not, not because they had a better time. Don't assume that I'm saying that. It was a very different time. And uh, out of that grew this strange thing. The last days of that period, the very last days of that haunted quality, of that poetic quality, came in the early days of World War One. You still see evidences of it uh, in, in the people. I saw a movie here not long ago of guys training for World War One. It was incredible, you know. I was I was in the army, and they were very different. I saw long lines of them coming towards the camera, and they had that kind of 
that kind of look that you saw on Fitzgerald's face. F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know. It was like a game. It was all fun. It was as though uh, uh, we're all, it was some kind of a big party, and they were all singing and marching. And then they had pictures taken at the end of the war, and already the look had changed on the faces. And by the mid-1920s, the vague change is becoming evident until finally you hit the 30s. Have you ever seen the face of the 30s? That funny, sidelong, vaguely cynical, odd look of John Dillinger? John Garfield, Spencer Tracy, these are faces of the 30s, a kind of sidelong, half-cocked grin as though, well, all right, that's all, all right. You, you see it in, in, in the faces of guys still today around. Jimmy Stewart is a man of the 30s. He's got that kind of look. It's a, it's a strange, cocky sort of look. Then you get the look of the guy of the 40s, a very another, a different kind of look. These are the guys that came out of the war and all that. They have this, 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 this frustrated, uh, not really frustrated, kind of uh, the Norman Mailer look, you know. Oh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the Jack Kerouac look. This is the 40s. And then you have a kind of a, a, a sort of a dynamic cheesecake look of the 50s. Uh, this, this could be, you can see this in the faces of Tab Hunter. You can see this in the faces of Rock Hudson. Uh, these are all guys. Now, the guys of the 60s, no one quite yet can define it. It'll take another 10 years before you can define the look of the people of the 60s. But you can sure see the others in the past. And I would say that a couple of hundred years from now, they're going to look back on all of our faces of this century. And they're going to say, you know, that was a fascinating time. Strange time. Uh, just like we say about any other century. We say that, you know, one, one of the great looks, uh, I think, when you talk about looks that, that, uh, that was the result of a century, was the incredibly self-confident, cocky, wild look of the people who lived in Europe about, well, about the early 18th, well, the late 18th century. Mid, mid, oh, that was a wild crowd, I'll tell you. Uh, oh, sure. If you ever see pictures of Stendhal, you see pictures of guys like Napoleon, uh, that whole that whole business of the French Revolution, what looks on their faces? You never saw such great looks. I mean, if a guy walked into an agency today wearing that look, they'd hit him in the mouth just from the look on his face. He's just got that, that, that cocky, fantastic look. Then, you have you seen paintings... Uh, that, that go back to the 14th, the 13th, and 14th century. That was a wild time, those looks on the faces. You take, you take some of the great painters of that period, Giotto and so on, they have these, you, when they blow up uh, a, a detail of a look on the face, these guys were scared out of their skull. Wild. Rembrandt has faces like that. Well, why? Because this was the time of this great transition the religious uh, frenzies that swept all over Europe, and at the same time, the strange, creeping modernity that was beginning. The world was crumbling for those guys. And so you saw the howling looks in the faces of guys who didn't know which way to turn, what was right and what was happening. And, and you see these things in these paintings, a look on the face of an entire period of a time. Now... Uh, you can go back. Uh, you know, we always have a tendency, whenever we recreate those times, to use modern faces. Uh, and so, somehow, we, we really like to think 
that, that Moses looked like Charlton Heston, had a look in the eye of a Charlton Heston. I question that strongly. <laughs> I re of course, we have no other recourse. I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to, uh, although I can think of about 45 different types of faces that would be better if you want to be more historically correct for the, the haunted, burning look that must have come on the faces of guys who were just beginning to grow out of total barbarity, remember. These men grew out of barbarism. Speaking of barbarism, I think time for a commercial here. Uh, you know, uh, that, that, uh, have you ever seen a movie? Uh, can you imagine? Can, can you really imagine uh, Cleopatra as uh, Elizabeth Taylor? That's, that's an incredible idea. Uh, the, the look in the, in the eye of, of a Cleopatra, who, by the way, was, if you know anything, you know, historically, was at the tail end of the, the great uh, Egyptian dynastic uh, series, and now it's all falling apart. And the new world, the modern world, that is coming in, represented by Rome and the, the, the Roman Empire and so on, this was one of the great transitional periods in history, I can assure you. She didn't have that farina, that bland Helena Rubinstein look on the face of, uh, of somebody like Elizabeth Taylor. She must have been, she must have been something uh, to see historically. And all the people who were in Egypt at that time must have been interesting to look at. They didn't look at all like what Hollywood thinks they look like. There, there must have been a haunted look in their eyes, a scared look in their eyes that just did not stop. Uh, you know, this is the same thing that, that, that was visited upon the Romans a few hundred years later when the Roman Empire began to crumble. The Roman Empire began to fall apart. The Byzantine Empire began to... Uh, this, was, this was another story. And the Romans then got the scared look in the face, uh, the look of, of people who didn't know which way to turn, what, what to do, where to look. And they also, they were seeing a pagan world crumbling. They were seeing a world of uh, great pageantry, a world of, of fantastic, fleshly, barbaric practices, one thing or another, slowly beginning to, uh, beginning to disappear. Uh, what about us now? I think we are the great transition men, of, of probably since the time of Christ. Uh, we are seeing the end of individual man. We are seeing the end of, of men walking around on the streets by themselves. We are seeing the end of men. Even, even to this day, you can go to many states, and, and men will tell you stories about the time when the state was not even a state, when it was just forests, when, when there were Indians here. Well, we are in the great transitional period. There was a little piece I read in the paper recently about the last continent has finally totally been uh, conquered. Antarctica. No longer is there a mystery anywhere on the face of the globe. Maybe little isolated spots where nobody has actually been, but they're not mysterious anymore. They know all about them. They've aerial photographed them. There's no, nothing mysterious anymore. And so we are part of the great transitional period. We still have in us, all the men alive today, have racial or at least uh, social memories of an earlier man. And still many of us remain earlier men. The men that come in the next thousand years will be as different from us, they have to be, as we are from Og and Charlie in the Neanderthal cave. Different in their outlook, different in the look in the eye, different in their mores and attitudes. You can see it already beginning, mass man. One thing about mass man, he has no individual conscience. Conscience. No individual conscience. And you see growing already in the big cities.
the uh, total ignoring of all other men. And so someone is getting killed or stabbed or raped across the street, you walk on. This will be modern man in spades a thousand years from now. You know, even now, a lot of young kids cannot understand, it can't get it through their heads, how guys went off to fight a war in World War II for other people. They can't understand this. They cannot under, they, it's an incomprehensible idea to them for guys from Cleveland to go to France and to Germany, to Rome, to, to uh, North Africa, to fight for some other peoples in trouble. This they cannot understand. Absolutely. This is part of the new world that will be. And nothing to do. I'm making no moral judgments here. I'm merely saying this is a new kind of man. Maybe he's a throwback to an earlier kind of man who did the same thing too. Very few people, yes, would, would have raised a hand when Attila the Hun was sacking the next village. They were, you know, what is it? Attila the Hun? He's sacking the village. That's all. That's their fault for being in his way. Uh, who am I? Uh, and, and so maybe we are making a... Speaking of Attila the Hun, it's commercial time. But I, I really... I, I really... The only thing that I would like to know about the time of the future... I don't care about their machines. Uh, I don't care about what they find on Mars. I don't care about what they find in the next galaxy. What I am curious about is 500 years from now, I'm not talking about 1985, I'm talking about 500 years from now, a thousand years from now, how they, how they look back on us. When they're sitting in their cloistered study halls, and there will be the version of that at that time. There always was, you know. There always will be. When, when men are looking through worn and dusty, crumbling volumes looking at the faces of us maybe even you yeah you never know whose picture is going to survive i can assure you a peasant living in the year 848 had no idea that somebody would be looking at his picture in the year 1962 65 1978 and they will be looking and they will wonder they will wonder about us they will wonder who we are they will wonder how we ever did the things we did how do they ever live like this? What fantastic people. What poetic people, they will say. What a wonderful sense of poetry they have. Maybe they'll even be playing this tape, wondering about us. And they'll say, well, that was an innocent time. That was an innocent time. Those people were just different. A very innocent, colorful time. Yes, those people really lived. And I'll bet they never knew it, they will say, and they'll be right. <laughs>